Jeff. Well, thank you very much, Randy, and uh, so good to almost see you. I can see your faces, a few of you. I'm picturing you again as I did last week, coming to you here again from my office during this uh, during this crisis that we're having. Uh, I've got to be honest with you. I'm Church of the Red Door. I am coming to you a little bit angry today, and uh, I'll be honest with you. I've been really, and I'm going to call it righteous indignation because I know uh, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, but Jesus at various points got angry. I tell you a little bit about what I'm angry about, and it's going to kind of work right into what we're, where we're going to go today. Uh, I'm entitling this message, uh, The Coronavirus Global Reset Part 2, and we're going to continue where we were two weeks ago. Uh, but I want to tell you, I've been extremely frustrated with a lot of what's been going on with these churches that continue to meet around the country, and I'm going to give you my take on that before we get going, and I think it'll spill right into where we're uh, going to try to lead in terms of why. Of course, that's the big question of why. Uh, as you know, many of you have seen a number uh, of the world is really oftentimes angry at some of these uh, churches that continue to meet in complete defiance of all orders. In fact, from what I've heard, at least two pastors that I know of have been taken off to jail and they feel as if they're being persecuted. And I'll be honest with you, it, it seems exactly what happened uh, with the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus was there and on the third temptation, Satan came to him and says, throw yourself off this uh, this temple, and they had gone to the Temple Mount, whether in body or not. We referred to it a couple of weeks ago. Throw yourself off, and then he quoted Psalm 91. Uh, and within that psalm, he said, you know, you know, the angels won't even let you strike your foot on a rock. But in the context of Psalm 91 was also, no plague will come near you, no pestilence will come near you. And many of these churches are using that very psalm, Psalm 91, to defend their gathering against... Uh, uh, against the law, really, in many places, and certainly against the better judgment of all the rest of the churches that exist around the globe. And they're using Psalm 91 to say, no, God will protect us as if they're somehow uh, standing up for what's right or standing up for God's plan or standing up for the scripture in some way. And yet that actually was used by Satan, Psalm 91, to tempt Jesus to do the exact same thing, to throw himself off, to take a risk. And of course, Jesus referred back to that and referred back to the text and said, no, you surely shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then the Bible says that Satan left him. So I think many of these churches are falling for the same uh, misapplication of Psalm 91 that Satan tempted Jesus with. And the point is, is that there are plenty of places in the scripture that we are to live under authority, to live under the rule, unless they're um, forcing us, like maybe like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and those who defied uh, just worshiping uh, their God and were told by law to worship another God. That's a very different story than just having a temporary uh, injunction against not gathering. So that really is frustrating to me to see that. It's brought the entire church under the scrutiny of people who are already skeptical and say these crazy uh, evangelicals or whoever these folks are that are defying the law and bringing all of us into, uh, into a really bad place and risking the lives of other people uh, by gathering like that. So let me just tell you, I think it's wrong. I think it's um, kind of ridiculous, to be honest with you, and I think it's actually falling for a temptation that Satan gave Jesus himself 
in the wilderness. And why does that, how can that spill over into what we're talking about today? And I'll, and I'll tell you this, I think that as we go into this, we have to begin to ascertain how is God, not asking the question, did God cause the coronavirus? I don't think we would ever put that off on God. It's a function of the fall. The question is, why is this happening? I was talking a little bit to our staff this last week and our executive team, and I said, how did Paul ever get to the place in Philippians 1 that he said, you know, I'd rather be uh, apart from the body and present with the Lord, but I realize there's fruitful labor and I feel like I'm supposed to stay here for a period of time. How can Jesus have made this crazy claim, it seems to our ears anyway, in Luke chapter 14, that one must hate their life? I mean, what does that even mean? How did Paul get from having an extraordinary life uh, of being a was rising up through the ranks and being a, was going to be a, a well-known rabbi, there's no question, and then forsake all of that and go to a place uh, that he said, I'd rather be apart from the body. In other words, my vision in the world, he actually was on a journey to actually getting to a place where he wasn't so in love with his life, his life. And I think that's why Jesus made that statement. You must hate your life to be a disciple of mine. What does it take to get us there? We can't just sit around and say, I hate my life, I hate my life, I hate my life. It's events like these that that capture our imaginations and make us realize that this world, we're not in control of it. There's a lot of pain and suffering that go on in this world. Many of you don't need to be told that with the coronavirus. Many of you already know that. But the point being that how did Paul get from one place to the next where he actually said, I'd much rather leave this life and be with the Lord? It was through suffering. So I'm going to take you, first of all, to 1 Peter chapter 4. Again, now this is Peter speaking, and this is the point. What is God going to use the coronavirus for globally? How can he use it for both those who don't know him, and how can he use this virus for those who do know him? That's where we started a couple of weeks, and that's where I want to continue uh, this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Most people never even think of that, that I would actually arm myself to suffer. I mean, to prepare to suffer. I mean, arm yourselves to suffer in the flesh. Why? Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. You know, most of our sin, we get involved in sin because we're in pursuit of something that's not God's pursuit for us. We're taking those things, those idols in our heart, lifting them up as a place of priority in our lives. We may go to church, we may even be a believer, but we really ultimately aren't living into having seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it really wouldn't define many of us. And so we need to enter into this, arm ourselves to suffer so that that vision that we had pre-Jesus can begin to disintegrate and we can move into his calling. Now, that doesn't mean we may not stay in the same job. It certainly doesn't mean that we would leave our family uh, literally in a literal way, but it certainly would revision us, make us rethink about the future. It says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. You know, the purpose for suffering is so we could cease from sin and begin to live into the will of God. I mean, what better way than something like this suffering, the suffering of solitude and the suffering of many of the bodily disciplines that Christ himself 
followed and practiced that would actually bring us into a place where sin would cease. And I can't wait to talk to you next week, Easter Sunday. I cannot wait to talk to you about some of those things that happen and the resurrection that can happen as we begin to live the life that Jesus lived and practice the disciplines that he practiced. 1 Peter chapter 4, then verse 12 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes on you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. Again, he's saying, uh, this is coming. Don't be surprised if there's a fiery ordeal among you. Now, sometimes for them, they were being persecuted for their faith. We're not being persecuted at this moment. In some ways we are, but not because of the coronavirus. This is not a persecution uh, that governments have said we can't gather. That's not persecution at all. Uh, But we are, in many ways, suffering through this painful time, both uh, economically, uh, many of you are lonely. We've talked about it over the last few weeks. Then 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 goes on to say, why? And here's why I think, here's folks, why I think the purpose of the coronavirus that God is using it, not causally, but why he's using it, he's using it in this way. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And it begins with us first. What will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God, according to the will of God, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So bottom line is simply this. God is using, I believe with all my heart, and, I, and I'm beginning to hear other pastors say similar things, I believe with all my heart that God is going to use this time in human history both to bring people to himself and also to begin to allow the church to become the church. And that's where we're going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago, this picture of Ezekiel's vision, this picture of the temple, and I'm going to explain a little bit what exactly that means. Now, I'll tell you right now that Ezekiel's vision is very controversial, this vision of the temple. Some believe that this temple will physically, literally be built when Jesus comes back or began the process of building when Jesus comes back, somewhere in the context of simply a future event. Others believe that it's merely symbolic uh, and that it just has a, a picture of us because as we've seen the last few weeks, we are the temple of God and that God dwells in us. And we looked at many places in the scripture that describe us being the temple. We'll look at a few more this morning. And uh, But what clearly, it dis- even irrespective of what you may feel uh, in terms of this temple picture from Ezekiel 40 all the way through the end of the, the prophet Ezekiel's uh, prophecy, uh, you get this picture of a couple of things that, whether you think it's symbolic or it's future, a couple of things that are happening here. Number one, God, there's blood involved. I remember seeing that movie a number of years back, There Will Be Blood. Uh, it was a, a pretty uh, graphic, uh, grabs you kind of a movie about greed, but here we simply see that there there's going to be blood involved in here because in the temple there are sacrifices that are happening. There's also going to be forgiveness of sin. We see that, I think, clearly. The beautiful part of this is in this temple, we see God beginning to live with his people 
dwell with his people forever in this temple. And then lastly, it's clear that we're going to possess the power of the Holy Spirit. And then like a river, that power is beginning again to flow out of the temple. Okay, so I believe that's clear both whether it's symbolic or whether it's going to literally happen. The river uh, is going to be a picture of the Holy Spirit, God's very presence with us. And then I want to look more specifically now at that vision. Okay, so now Ezekiel, if you wouldn't mind, Ezekiel 43, 7 through 9, I'm calling this little section only a wall. It's a picture of, I believe, what God is doing in our day through this coronavirus. We can use it that way. We can absolutely grow into this and recognize. Now, what's interesting, I was speaking with a couple the other day on the phone, and they said it's extraordinary that Jeff, that you were talking three, four weeks about idolatry, and then we got led right into this place where we can't cling to our idols anymore. I mean, we we can't, you know, some of the idols that we used to hang on to, we can't cling to them anymore because they feel like they've been stripped from us. Look at this prophecy in the temple, and I, I wanted to explain it to you. Ezekiel 43, now verses 7 through 9, says, and now this is again, uh, uh, this Ezekiel's vision is being described to him. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, God speaking, where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings, by their harlotry, another picture for idolatry or um, uh, being impure, and by the corpses of their kings, and I would think of that as being dead men spiritually, when they die by setting, now catch this, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost with only the wall between me and them. And they've defiled my holy name by their abominations which they've committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their harlotry and the corpses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell among them forever. Now, this is a, a, a graphic picture of the temple. Ezekiel gets his picture of the temple, but in the temple is a wall uh, that he's describing, and there's just this wall up somehow that God's uh, activities in the temple are there, and yet they're mixed with, right next to just a wall inside the temple, there are these harlotries just on the other side of the wall, and it was a picture of Israel who had actually brought some of these uh, idolatrous things into the very temple. And he said, do you see this? There's only a wall between me and them, and it shouldn't be this way. And so there's going to be wrath on this. And he said, if they'll remove these walls, remove these harlotries, remove these things, then I will come and dwell with them forever. Look, if we now are the temple, and here's the point, if we now as the church and individually and then collectively as the church, locally and then even universally the church, if we are this building being built into a dwelling place for God and the Spirit, can we have partitioned off places of our lives? If we're the temple where only a wall separates my Sunday activities or my activities with my Christian friends, and yet on the other side of that wall, I'm still clinging to these things and prioritizing these things in my life that don't have anything to have anything to do with God and are actually adversarial to the very kingdom in which I ostensibly serve? I mean, can these two things coexist? Well, here's the picture that Ezekiel gets. No, God says these two, these two things cannot 
exist side by side. You can't put, you know, as it says here, uh, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their do doorpost beside my doorpost, these two things cannot coexist in the temple. Both the literal temple uh, that Ezekiel was seen and that existed prior to him and even the reconstructed temple that would come after Ezekiel when they returned under the prophets Zechariah and Haggai. But let me tell you something, the temple now, it certainly cannot, should not be inside of us. So here's the question, could this coronavirus be a real reset for us to begin to remove some of that idolatry in our lives and what a what better way than God forcing us into solitude to really think and we had looked at Zechariah a couple of weeks ago where they went off into their house by themselves speaking of Israel specifically there but in this future picture going off by themselves and mourning over the one that, that they had pierced I think this is an incredible time for reflection that goes beyond anything that we may ever see in our lives again uh, this moment in time where there's kind of a hush you know, it's really strange. I've been reading about some of the things that are happening. The world has completely come to a complete uh, shutdown. It's amazing. They said the streams are getting cleaner and the air and the smog is beginning to... I mean, it's like God is bringing life out of this hush, both literally life out of this hush and this quiet hush over the world and hopefully within our own lives. Let's use this. Let's continue to use this to make sure that we don't have a wall inside or somehow compartmentalize God, but let him have complete access to our entire body. Now, again, you gotta understand that this vision of the temple is also difficult for, some of you may be uh, observant Jews. It's difficult for them too because they see this future temple with blood sacrifices and all these things, and they have kind of argued that away. Many have argued that away through the years. In fact, that now the new sacrifices are no longer blood, but their prayer and repentance and charity, for instance. Many observant Jews believe that that has taken the place of the temple. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we don't believe that uh, that has taken the place of the temple. We still need the blood that's involved in the temple and Ezekiel's vision of this future temple. We definitely need it uh, without any question. We need it, uh, the blood to cover us as we saw last week for redemption and for sanctification uh, and for cleansing and for justification. We need that blood that needs to be present in this vision. But again, if it's symbolic, it's something even larger than that. Let me, let me be clear. Uh, there, God is done with animal sacrifices. He's finished with those things. Uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 through 27, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Why? Because he did once and for all when he offered up himself. Now, look, what this is saying is that Jesus once and for all offered up himself. We don't need animal sacrifices. In fact, God was never pleased with animal sacrifices. They were only pointing towards the ultimate sacrifice which would be his son. Hebrews 10.8 goes on to say, and after saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, in other words, God never did desire uh, the slaughtering of animals, nor have you taken pleasure in them, uh, which were offered, by the way, according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away, that's Jesus, away the first in order to establish the second, 
By this we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. In other words, God is not interested. So when we're looking at this future picture of the temple, though it has the appearance of blood sacrifices, in my own heart, and, I, and again, some of you may disagree with this, believing in a literal reconstruction of a temple with sacrifices, I'm sorry, I just can't see it. Uh, Paul seems to be very clear with the Jewish believers that it's over. Jesus was the final sacrifice, and when he said it is finished, it was completely and utterly finished, never to be resurrected again, ever, in, in the lifetime, both of the church or in the future. That's my view. Some of you may disagree, but we can at least agree that this temple is speaking towards forgiveness of sins and the covering of blood and, uh, and then the sacrifices that would go. And I believe those symbolically are sacrifices that we'll look for uh, now. So what if, if it's not animals, what is God's desire? Well, 1 Peter 2 verse 4 says, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and present in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, that's us being the temple again, for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. In other words, what Peter is saying is that you're now going to be like a temple, uh, and then the sacrifices are no longer going to be animal sacrifices, but you're going to be built into this house so that you can offer spiritual sacrifices. Well, what would those God-pleasing sacrifices look like? Hebrews 13, verses 15 through 16, simply say, Through him then let us continually offer up, here's one, a sacrifice of praise to God. Boy, I tell you what, my time in, the, in worship and prayer over these last few weeks is accelerating. It's not decelerating, it's accelerating. Worship for me is becoming more uh, prominent now as I've just been forced into solitude and it just fills, the, fills my office. I told you last week, it can change the atmosphere of worship and that's a sacrifice that the Lord loves, uh, not because he has an ego and needs it, because it changes us. Uh, and, and that is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name. So we're praising him, we're worshiping him, we're giving him thanks continuously giving thanks in all things. And it says, and don't neglect doing good and sharing for which such sacrifices God is pleased. So look, it feels like we've got to, you know, hunker down and we've got to hang on to everything we have. And God's saying, no, I'm asking you for the sacrifices of, of sharing and worship and thankfulness. And these are the kind of sacrifices that God always wanted because their heart sacrifices have nothing to do with the blood of bulls and goats. Nothing to do, and you see that in, in the letter to the Hebrews too. And then finally, ultimately, what is the sacrifice that God wants most wants? Well, it's actually our own bodies. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your entire body, your bodies as living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now that's a powerful picture that it's actually us. Not only was it Christ's sacrifice for us, but now that we're the temple and the blood's been poured out so we can become that temple, our sacrifices continue, but they're very different than, than the blood of animals. Okay, so I want to go on and see Ezekiel's description, a little bit more of this temple, and how this can be a real reset in our own lives. So let's continue in Ezekiel 43. Now go to verse 10. It says, and, and this is important, it says, as for you, son of man, 
describe the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the plan. In other words, Ezekiel was speaking, I believe, in a language that he understood. He was a priest. And so you get this picture of this. If he was trying to picture the restoration of Israel and the restoration of the nations, he would best be able to speak it in language that was so dear and precious to him, which was this temple language. And he goes on in verse 11, it says, And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them to the design of the house, its structure, its exits, its entrances, all of its designs, all its statutes, and all of its laws, and write it in their sight so that they may observe its whole design and all its statutes and to do them, to do them. Now, this is incredibly powerful uh, when you think about, okay, here's what I want you to do, Ezekiel. I want you to describe the vision that I'm giving you, language that you can understand. The, the temple here really is uh, going to be a future people. And as we can understand this symbolically too, we're going to begin to pick, get a picture of what we the church should be. If we're the temple, what should it look like? What's the plan look like? He says, measure the plan. Give, give great detail that I'm going to give you. Would these things have some symbolic importance to us as we try to look forward and see the temple that he saw, that this is in fact what the church was going to look like in the end of time? Or is it a church that is a temple with walls built up and people have partitioned and given God a little bit but not given the fullness of God in their own lives as individual temples? Uh, would this be the case? Now, I'm going to do something that I rarely do. Uh, I'm going to share with you something that was shared with me, and I found it incredibly profound. Now, prophecy, some of you say, well, we don't, we're not under prophecy. We're secessionists. We don't believe that prophecy exists anymore. And I am very cautious with prophecy, I'll be honest with you, but I cannot look past Paul's admonition to the church at Thessalonica that says, look, you need to hold on to the prophecies, hold on to those things that are good. In fact, let me read it for you here real quickly. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says, Do not quench the spirit, but examine everything carefully. He says, excuse me, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Now what he's saying, he said, sometimes God's going to speak through people and you need to cling to what is good. Now he's not saying that these prophets are going to be perfect, but cling to those things that clearly uh, are, are God. And how do we know that, well, when they come to pass in very significant ways. And, and I will tell you that back in 2009, it was all the way back to 1986, there was a guy named David Wilkerson. Many of you may remember David Wilkerson from Crossing the Switchblade, done incredible ministry among gangs and, and, and all those kinds of things and drug addicts. In fact, my middle daughter Tatum absolutely fell in love with this book, The Cross on the Switchblade. And I remember as a child, I did too. I've always highly respected David Wilkerson. I think he passed away in 2011, if I'm not mistaken, in April of 2011. Uh, just a real man of God, or irrespective of what you thought about all of his theological positions, he certainly was a Christ-centered, God-centered, gospel-centric man. But he gave a very fascinating prophecy in 1986 and then I read a review of that by John Piper, who I highly respect, and no offense to John Piper, but he, he said, we got to cling to what's good, and I do not cling to what John Wilkerson, uh, David Wilkerson said, 
because he talks about New York. He talks about a plague that's being thwarted out. He goes, we should have learned our lesson by Y2K and not had all these apocalyptic visions and everything. But I think sometimes when we look back, we can see something extraordinary. And again, this was sent to, to me by one of you. Uh, the Landau sent this to me uh, yesterday and I wanted to read it to you. He says, this is a prophecy by David Wilkerson in 1986, very short. He says, I see a plague coming on the world and the bars and the churches and the government are gonna shut down. The plague will hit New York City and shake it like it has never been shaken before. The plague is gonna force prayerless, now catch this, gonna force prayerless believers into radical prayer and into their Bibles and repentance will be the cry of the man of God in the pulpit and out of it will come a third great awakening that will sweep America and the world. Now, let me tell you something. Only time will tell whether or not this coronavirus is the plague either that he saw or whether or not these are words that we can cling to, but I don't despise that utterance. It has a shocking reality to it now, especially given the epicenter, at least in the United States with New York and what's going on there, and then increasingly, but he said it's gonna shut everything down. It's gonna shut the bars down, the church. Can you imagine even a place where you would have thought all the churches would have been shut down? Now, what I find also interesting about this prophecy, he says, and yet through the pulpit, uh, preachers are gonna be preaching repentance, a, a chance for people to amend their ways, to turn, either to come to Christ for the first time, or those who following Jesus to say, no, I'm not gonna have any more petitions in my life. I'm gonna, uh, no more walls between uh, God and me. I'm gonna completely give my life as a living sacrifice and he has access to everything that I am. Uh, and he said the preachers are gonna be preaching. What I find interesting about it, he said the preachers are gonna be preaching from the pulpit repentance and yet the churches are closed. Uh, closed. Now what's fascinating to me about that prophecy is that you can see, I don't know if you can see it here, I'll lift it up for you. There is a pulpit right here that I am having in my office, but you gotta understand that that was, that was occurring well before there was ever internet. 1986, there was no internet. I don't know how he could have conceived that all the churches would be closed in this vision and yet preachers would still be preaching repentance. Uh, on, when this plague hit America and closed bars and churches, I, I find it fascinating. Now, whether or not you wanna buy in or think that that prophecy had any uh, significance at all, is that's your decision, but I find that fascinating and it fits right in with what I've been seeing. This is an opportunity for us like we've never had, uh, at least in my lifetime. I thought, again, I thought 2008 was significant. I thought 9-11 was significant. This far surpasses that. Will we see this as an opportunity, as an opportunity to amend our ways and become the church that God's called us to become? You know, as we look back at this picture of this temple, a couple of things. As he describes it, what are its entrances and exits? What does that temple look like? Uh, what's my specific role in this temple? And then lastly, how might uh, we impact the world around us? And again, for Church at the Red Door, our, our very tagline, our, our vision is to impact the world by um, engaging the valley here, the Coachella Valley, and maybe many of you online, socially and spiritually, right? And culturally, how can we do that? Well, now maybe a greater opportunity than we've ever had, than we've ever had. Now, so back to the temple, if it is symbolic, there may be some very specific things that we can learn from the description of the temple. And I'm gonna give you one this morning that I've shared once before with you, Church of the Red Door folks. But again, in this context, I think it'll be very helpful. 
Dr. Michael Brown, a, a great Jewish theologian, a Messianic Jew, a love, loves Jesus. I highly respect him and many of the things that he's written. Uh, very, very helpful for me in my own understanding of, of the text through a Jewish perspective. Dr. Michael Brown said, let's examine the possibility that Ezekiel's vision is fulfilled with symbolic meaning and may not be intended to be interpreted literally. Let's just take that opportunity to think, well, let's see. He said, rather, the, this vision was God's way of saying to his servant, I will forgive my people. I'm going to wipe away their sins and bring my glory into their midst. See it, taste it, touch it. It will surely happen. I love that picture. Uh, otherwise, the, this, you know, temple and, and this Ezekiel's vision, how is how, it applicable? If it's just ha something that's going to happen in the future, how, does it have any resonance with us today? Will it have any impact on us today? So here's the question. Does God live in a temple? I mean, was God, does God need a house to live in? Uh, Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2, very clearly. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? Where's a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. I made all these things. How are you going to put me in a box here or, or even a temple? But all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Folks, what I'm asking is that I think what Isaiah is seeing here, God's speaking to Isaiah now 700 years before the time of Jesus. He's saying, I'm not going to be put in a temple or in a box or in a house. I'm not going to do that. Why? Because I created all of this. He said, but I, here's one that I will look to, one who's humble and contrite. Uh, what a beautiful picture and trembles at his word. Uh, well, I think he's seen that God's going to inhabit us. We are going to become the temple. And then lastly, I'll, I'll just say this, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, this was part of the Davidic covenant. Listen to what it says, uh, says here. It says, when your days are complete, speaking to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, talking about Jesus clearly, and the New Testament references the Davidic covenant as being fulfilled in Christ, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom, and he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. So we know that Jesus, this one sitting on the throne of David, which is clearly Jesus in the New Testament, we know that he will build a temple. The question is, what kind of house is he going to build? Well, Hebrews chapter 3, speaking to the Jewish community again, the believing Jewish community again here, Paul says this, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. We are the house. We are the house that Jesus has built and is building. Christ the cornerstone, the apostles and prophets the foundation, and we are living stones being built again into this house. It's an extraordinary, amazing picture again of this, uh, of this uh, Ezekiel's vision, I believe, I believe. So that's a clincher for me. And then finally, what does it look like? Let's talk a little bit about what this looks like, this temple. Uh, I, so let's continue. Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12, and then We'll start to close with this. Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, uh, water was flowing from underneath the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faced the east, 
and the water was flowing down from under from the right side of the house and from the south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate by way of that gate which faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. So here, get this picture. Ezekiel has this picture of this, of this temple and, and there's water coming out from the temple and it's only a little trickle and he sees a trickle. So that's the vision. And again, I believe that Ezekiel, God's giving Ezekiel language that he could be so encouraged by. As a priest, this would be very significant. Actually, with Lynx Players International, um, which we have these fellowship groups, many of you are part of these Lynx groups, uh, many of these, uh, a similar thing. We use the language of golf because it's what we understand in ways to communicate pictures that we see or the call of the gospel. I think that's what's happening here. He says, when the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, verse 3, he measured a thousand cubits and led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. And again, he measured a thousand and led me out through the water, water reaching the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the loins. And again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I couldn't ford. He couldn't swim over it for the water had risen enough water to swim in a river that could not be forded. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were very many trees on the one side and on the other. And then he said to me, These waters go out toward the eastern region, and they go out to the Araba, and they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. And it will be about that every living creature which swims in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish for these waters go there and others will become fresh so that everything, now catch this, everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it uh, from Ingedi to Ainaglaim. And there will be a place of the spreading of nets and their fish will be according to their kinds like the fish of the great sea, very many. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. By the river on its banks, on the one side and on the other, all kinds of trees for food, and their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail, and they will bear every month because this water flows from the sanctuary, and their fruit will be for the food and their leaves for healing. Now, again, we'll get this picture very clearly in the Revelation, John's Revelation, he says something similar. He sees this river, he sees these all kinds of trees and fruit being produced. It's amazing. So he's really picking up on Ezekiel's vision. This is what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like. Now the question for us is simply this. Why bring up this vision in the context of the coronavirus? In the context of this, here, here's the bottom line. I would suggest to you that the Lord is calling us back to being the temple. Now, not to suggest many of you are not currently acting as the temple, but both individually a temple, both uh, as a church community as a temple, and then more broadly, the church just universally. He's calling us to do what? To be conduits, not of our own power, but of the very power of God that has been called to flow through us. But we cannot be conduits of this, in this picture, the river, the power. Where is it flowing from? It's flowing out of the temple. Our very task in the Great Commission is to go into the world 
and do what? Proclaim the gospel, baptize people, and then make disciples, teaching them, training them. And everything that Jesus, Jesus is saying, everything that I've taught you, you teach them. Are we doing that? Is the church at large, is the global church, local church, and then us as individuals, are we functioning adequately as the temple, the tabernacle, which is the very, the, the place where God takes his power, it's his power, not ours, and begins to let it flow out of us. Are you, and again, I immediately think of John chapter four and John chapter seven, the woman at the well, if you'll, if you'll drink this water, it'll bubble up into you into eternal life, right? And then John seven, uh, this water is not only gonna fill you, but it'll begin to flow out of you. Is this, are you a temple in which that it is trickling out of? Are we a church that this flow of life, which is the life of Jesus himself, the very Zoa life of God, is that life flowing through us or have we had too many in, hindrances in our life? Are there too many places in our lives that are blocking the flow? And many of those can be idolatry, not not placing God in high enough priority in our daily experience, not just going to church on Sunday, but am I a worshiper? Am I constantly in in a position of thankfulness? Am, am I practicing the disciplines? We'll talk more about that in weeks to come. Am I practicing the spiritual disciplines that Jesus did so that it flowed through him in such profound ways that even people would come near? And this happened also to some of the disciples. The divine life of God was flowing through them so easily that people would just touch their garment and they would be healed. I mean, this is what I think he's calling the church to in this moment. This is what's in my spirit so firmly entrenched. Do not just try to get through this pandemic. Oh, if we can just get it over. Push it behind us. We're just desperate to get back to going to our restaurants and doing all this. Embrace this time. I think that's what God has been speaking to me. And, and, when I, and of course, when I read that prophecy from David Wilkerson in 1986, I'm like, look, he's going to bring a plague, but what, the, what is the purpose? So it would drive us back. It would drive us back to the word that we would be people that were humble and contrite and tremble at his word. So what Isaiah was seeing, Isaiah 66, what Isaiah was seeing is that God's not interested in filling a temple uh, some tabernacle, some house. He created all this. He's always, his plan has always been to live on the inside of each one of us. And if he does, who, who, who are those people gonna be? The humble and the contrite, people who tremble at his word. Are you spending, I'm asking you, I'm begging you, I'm compelling you, spend more time in the word over these coming weeks than you have ever spent. Spend more time in worship than you've ever spent. Spend it in solitude. Get away. Ask the Lord what he would have you to do during this time. Get to know him. Uh, then what happens is you as the temple, it's not going to be a trickle. It's not even going to be up to the ankles. No, I believe it's going to come up to the knees and then rise above and then be a, be a flow. Then everywhere it goes, it brings life. And this is clearly a picture of every kind of fish is a picture of just like Ezekiel 18, I believe it was, talking about every kind of bird, you know, that's going to look for shade under the tree. Another picture of the kingdom. All these beasts from, that don't know Christ coming from all over, coming fish and birds. And 
from different nations are going to find shade and are going to find water. And, and if we are the temple, are we the temple? Are we that way? So when I see that water going out, that not just trickling. I mean, I, I do not want to be a person who the power of God trickles out of. Well, he might be a believer. I, I'm not sure. I, I heard he goes to church. I don't want to trickle. I don't even want it to my ankles. Well, he goes to church. Pretty good guy, you know. I've seen him do some nice things. Knees, I don't want that. I, don't, I, want it, I want the power of God to flow so cleanly through me. And I know I'm not there. Folks, please understand. This is what the Lord has been speaking to me. I want, he wants all access to my entire body, my body a living sacrifice, and so that he can flow, his, his Zoe life can flow through me. And, and then do what? So I can show off because I'm a conduit of the power of God? Of course not. So that everywhere his power goes, and this metaphor of water, where everywhere it goes, things that are dead come back to life. Now, uh, the one thing I want to add to this picture is that in verse 9 it says, uh, and it come about that every living creature where it swarms every place the river goes will live and there will be many fish and these waters will become fresh so that everything where the river goes is going to become fresh. And it's an amazing picture. But then it says swamps and marshes will not become fresh and they will be left for salt. Now that's interesting. Why wouldn't the why wouldn't the swamps and the marsh, and I, I was asking the Lord that this week, Lord, what is it about the swamps and the marshes not becoming fresh? Well, what is it? They're not in the flow of that life, the very life of God. The very life of God. Not just the fact that we breathe, not just resuscitation at resurrection. No, the very life of God. Jesus claimed to have the life of God in him. And then he was able to deposit that in us once he had spilled his blood. Now, that's the gospel in its very essence. So I am incredibly excited about next week. Now, next week being Easter, I didn't realize I got up about even before, maybe five o'clock this morning. I was up early and the Lord just put this all in my head. I hope to next week begin to put together the Exodus template, the, the vision of the of this uh, temple that we have, Ezekiel's temple, uh, collectively put together all the idolatry conversation that we would have, and then bring in this whole global reset, and then culminate it cyclically back to the very resurrection itself. And I'm excited about sharing, I think God's already put some things on my heart about next week that will be not only inspiring, but will be invigorating. My challenge to you, will you be taking in the life of God this week? Will you be, what, you know, drinking his blood and eating his flesh? John chapter 6. And that's, in fact, what we're going to do now. And we put it in your missive. If you're not prepared, just do it as if you had it or come back later. This will be on YouTube in another few hours. Come back later and take it along with Pastor Paul. So I'm going to now turn this over to Pastor Paul and he is going to lead us in communion. And just as a reminder, uh, Randy may have reminded you next week, we'll have a Friday. Paul's going to conduct a, a Good Friday service right from his office. And then Sunday, I'll be doing an Easter message right back here next week. I want to uh, tell you that we love you. Uh, we miss seeing so many of you. I can't tell you how discouraging it is not to be able to see your faces. And yet, I, I tell you, for me on a personal level, 
God has been dealing with me in very, very profound ways, very profound ways. And lastly, I want to say this. If God has been doing something in your life and he has been uh, refining you in a particular way, maybe a verse or showed you some kind of something that was distancing you from him and he's spoken that to you over these last few weeks, I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you just to put it on an iPhone or capture it in some way through your phone. One minute, not over a minute, just a minute. Say, this is a verse. God's been speaking to me about this in my life and and he's really changing me. If he's refining you through this process, if you would do that and then uh, we can show you how you can transfer that file to us and then I'm hoping that we can begin to play some of those in uh, weeks to come, some of what God is doing in your lives. So anyway, Pastor Paul, take it away. We love you. God bless you. Have a great and wonderful day, even as we're in solitude. Uh, Talk to you next week.